0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: how do you invest in the current climate how do you look for quality companies and what about how to think like an investor when is the best time to sell a winner you might have picked a winner it's gone to the moon well should you buy more should you sell some should you hang on to it We're going to talk about all this and more. We're going to talk about quality companies. We're going to talk about interesting themes. We're going to chat about everything to do with investing. And you're in for a real treat with this episode. Now, just for the regulars, a couple of housekeeping things just at the top here. If you're interested in my Millennial Daily, it is our daily under 10 minutes, an episode, short form podcast It's now officially on Apple. It's on Google. It's everywhere. It's still on Spotify. It's just no longer a Spotify exclusive podcast. Subscribe to My Millennial Daily if you just want daily chat. Also, if you are over 55, we've rebooted the Retire Right podcast. It's officially now formally in production. I've been removed from the process. Usually, if I get involved, things slow down, but it's officially in production. If you're over 55 years old and you want to look at retiring very soon, or if you're just interested in learning what to do now, so when you get to 60, you don't have these regrets. So, Retire Right podcast is officially back in action, but we can't do our Thursday episodes on My Millennial Money without Global X. Each year, the ETF landscape grows as more and more funds get added to the market which is why GlobalX have created a tool for investors to compare the ETFs currently available in Australia. Head to the link in the show notes or globalxetfs.com.au forward slash MMM to download the 2023 ETF landscape report without further delay. I bring you my discussion with Roger Montgomery. Roger is a leading equities analyst. He's an author and investment industry commentator, Roger is often bemused by the lack of common sense demonstrated in the investment world because it is common sense in the selection of sound businesses that lead to superior returns. How about that? Well, my name's Glenn James. You're listening to My Millennial Money. Here is Roger Montgomery. We're talking about all things investing. So, Roger, you invest in a winner, it's maybe only 10% of your portfolio or less at the time. The winner goes to the moon. It's now exploded and it's worth 40 or 50% of your portfolio. Do we sell winners once they win or do we take that money away and run off and have a good holiday, what do we do <laughs> when we pick a winner?
2: I can tell you what I would do and I could tell you what other investors tend to do. So, I've been in exactly this uh, scenario that you described, so I can speak with it with some authority. Uh, the company that, uh, for me, presented that exact dilemma uh, was a company called The Reject Shop. We bought the shares in 2000 and uh, they were trading at about $2 each and we liked uh, the people running the business, and in fact, uh, the CEO at the time was probably one of the best merchants in the country, a guy named Barry Saunders, uh, and he was the consummate retailer. He knew where things had to go on a shelf. Uh, he just knew how to how to sell, uh, and so we knew that this was a combination. This is a rollout story, so this is a, and I don't want to use lingo, but this is a retailer that is going from 10 stores to 150 stores. You tend to make a lot of money in Australian in the Australian stock market investing in retailers that are expanding their store footprint. One of the easier ways to make money in the market, Uh, and then it was run by a really capable and competent CEO. Uh, Anyway, so we bought the shares at about two dollars for our clients. The shares promptly went to 12. Uh, so we had a huge, uh, huge increase uh, in the share price, and the the weighting in the portfolio was about forty four percent or forty five percent. And we, at back at the time, we weren't running a pooled fund; we were running running individual managed accounts. So we had to call every client to explain that this was now high risk in their portfolio. It was too heavy in the portfolio. Now. The response, the right response, is to actually reduce the weighting. Now, how you do that, there's a number of different ways to do that. You could do it by re-weighting the portfolio every month and bringing down the weighting back to its original weight. Uh, or you might do it every quarter or you might say I'm not going to bring it back to an original the original waiting but what I'll do is I'll bring it back to something that I that makes more sense you know I I can see another opportunity out there or I need I know I'm going to need the money for a purchase you don't want to be investing money in the stock market by the way if you know you're going to need that money in the next 2 or 3 years because it could take It could take more than that amount of time or about that amount of time to recover from a crash. So any money that you know is going to be required, you might sell. So that could be a reason for re-weighting. That's that's what I would do. But of course, the clients don't want to do that, right? Now Now it's their favorite stock in their portfolio. They love it. Mind you, they don't know anything about it, right? They don't know what I know about the business. They only know what they think they know. And there's a great phrase, don't believe everything you think. Right, mm. well, it's really good to remember that, um, and so a lot of our clients at the time who I called directly uh, to explain that this is now uh, you know too heavy a weighting in the portfolio, and we need to sell it. They didn't want to, but we did anyway, uh, and the share price you know share price has subsequently collapsed because Barry Saunders retired, and you know there's been a, a conga line of CEOs who haven't been as good as him. So.
1: You mentioned, you know, if you were going to sell it down, you might do so over the coming months or the quarter. Mm. Is that just a risk management thing rather than just logging in and clicking sell half on day one, like the reverse of a DCA on the way in?
2: It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, So, what you do is you say, right, I've I've put 5% of my portfolio into this company or I've put 2% or 1%, whatever the percentage is. And every month you're going to rebalance the portfolio to get them all back to their original weight. So this, it's it's doubled. So it's now 2% of my portfolio. I'm going to sell half because that brings me back to 1%, depending on what everything else in the portfolio has done. So that's one approach. It's called rebalancing. um, And and investors should be doing it um, regularly anyway, rather than just putting things in their bottom drawer and leaving it. Because it might be, for example, if they're using, let's say they're using ETFs. Uh, and they've got a broad index fund, but they've also got some thematic ETFs. You know, no doubt you've been talking about those. It might be an AI themed ETF. Well, you know, that's arguably, you know, and I say arguably carefully, but it's arguably a fad at the moment. Now, it's going to have a long term future AI, and it could be transformative for the human race, but it doesn't mean the share prices are always going to go up. So mm. what you do is you rebalance those because you've made a lot of money in them and it is unusual to make 20 or 30 or 40% in 12 months or even in less time. And so if you say, for example, make 50% in a month, you have to be very cautious about that rather than excited about it because you know that if you annualise that, that's an unsustainable return. Mm. And so rebalancing is one way to maintain discipline uh, and make sure that you're, you're always selling at high prices and buying at low prices.
1: And I think the the whole tax thing is worth managing. Uh, oh, yeah, managing I can talk and, to you about that. Yeah, because like I, I shared this story like uh, a lot of my listeners know and and you know that I won't put more than probably 10% of my portfolio in individual stocks or speckies or startups because I like to be interested. I like to be engaged. I I like all this investing stuff. And a few years ago, I, I put some money in a, um, a pre-IPO it IPO'd, went to the moon, like it was 600% or something in two mm. weeks. And yeah, that's,
2: that's time to get out.
1: Yeah. And I was just like, this is amazing. And it was real money. Mm. Um, it's only real when you, when you actually crystallize it. That's right. So I'm like, <laughs> I actually don't, I don't want to hold this for 12 months to get the CGT concession because yeah, it's no. probably not going to be like this in 12 months. So I'll get the getting while the getting's good. And I did a smash and grab and got out of there. You know.
2: yeah so so it is quite common it's it I've seen it over I've been doing this for 33 years uh, one of the things that I've seen that is very popular amongst individual investors particularly those who are sensitive to tax uh, is to say, Something that's making money. I'm not going to sell it because I'll have to pay capital gains tax. So they hang on to it for much longer. They outstay their welcome. Mm. It then makes a loss and then they're happy to sell it because now they've got a tax deduction. You know, they've got a capital loss to carry forward. Um, that's, you should never, and you've heard this advice many, many times. You should never make investment decisions based on tax. So you don't invest in things just because they've got a tax benefit. Um, you invest in them because they're a good investment. Uh, and the same goes for individual shares or ETFs. If something's over the top in terms of its valuation, we can talk about more about, we'll talk more about that today. Mm. If it's over the top, then, you know, you take your profit, you pay your tax and you move on. Um, you don't let tax drive the investment decision-making.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Roger, tell us a little bit about you, your experience, what you do, a little bit about your fund and your business, Uh Yeah, because a lot of the listeners may not have heard of your name before unless they listen to maybe ABC or other podcasts that you've been appearing on or any type of investment commentary slots.
2: So I I started out as an equities analyst uh, back in the early 1990s in Melbourne. I then moved up. I was poached by BT Australia Bankers Trust uh, and worked on a proprietary trading desk and a derivatives trading desk uh, in Sydney then worked as a market strategist chief market strategist uh, for Woodmanet Jardine fleming worked at Merrill Lynch and then set up uh, a number of funds management businesses i in 2010 wrote a book called valuable uh, on value investing yep it you've is. got a copy there yep thanks uh, for you've that. got that mate you've got the hard copy hardcover silverback <laughs> version right that's a rare limited edition one that one yeah um Yes, I wrote that and really the the objective there was to be able to say to my kids and my family, if anything happened to me, here's the recipe for investing. Primarily what that book tries to do um, is separate investing from speculating. Uh, And and sometimes people don't know that they're speculating. They think they're investing, but they're in fact speculating. Um, And if you'll indulge me for a minute, there's two ways to approach the stock market. One is to treat the stock market uh, like a venue where you can bet on the ups and downs uh, much as you might much as you would bet on black or red at a roulette wheel, at a casino. That's gambling. Mm. Right? that's speculating. Um, the alternative is to treat the stock market as a venue where you can buy into businesses. And you know the well, recently we just had the Australian Financial Reviews Rich 200 released, and if you have a look, at what all of those people do, they run businesses. Nowhere is there someone who is in the Rich 200 who said, uh, I had a job and I saved my money uh, and put it in the bank. Uh, they ran businesses. And so wealth creation works best uh, through in the capitalist model that we work in, uh, works best through um, the accumulation of wealth through businesses. And businesses accumulate wealth by generating a profit on their equity the higher the rate of return, obviously, the more attractive it is. You want a bank account that's earning a 50% interest rate, not a bank account earning a 1% interest rate. It's the same with a business. Mm-hmm. You want a business with equity earning a 20 or 30% return on its equity rather than 1% or 2%. Um, and then you want a business that can do that. Uh, they tend to have a competitive advantage to be able to sustain that because obviously if a business is generating a 30% return, guess what? Other people want to start that business as well. And the first thing that they'll do is uh, invent the same product or create the same product and charge a lower price for it. They'll undercut your margin and then your return on equity comes down. So if you can find a business that's been doing 20 or 30% return on equity for decades, guess what it means that? Competitors haven't been able to undercut that business. They haven't been able to cut their lunch. They haven't been able to uh, compete away some competitive advantage that that business has.
1: Do you have any uh, business names top of oh, mind sure. that might be like that right now? It would CSL be one of them?
2: <laughs> CSL is definitely yeah. one. Cochlear is another. Um, we think Promedicus uh, is another. Um, Resmed, uh, ARB, uh, which sells bull bars of all things, um, Reese Plumbing. Um, they've been able to sustain very high rates of return on equity for decades with very little debt. They haven't had debt to boost it. And then what you want to do is remembering that we're talking about what the stock market is. It's a venue where you can buy into those businesses that create wealth. And the wealth creation process is finding a business that can generate those high rates of return on equity, but then get this, retain a large portion of those profits and reinvest it at a high rate of return. And here's something controversial. Why would I want to get a dividend from a business that generates a 20 or 30% return on its money? Right? I don't want them to pay it to me. What am I going to do? I'm going to put in a, a term deposit and get 4%. I'd rather they keep the money and get another 20 or 30%. So provided they can continue to generate those high rates of return and they've got an opportunity to employ that profit at a, at a high rate of return again, they should keep the money. So, the stock market is a venue where you could buy businesses and you can buy some outstanding businesses. And between you and me, I think it's a lot simpler than owning property mm. um, because property is a very hands on business. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, I, th- I call it a grubby business. You know, you have to, you, your tenants are going to ring up, they're going to want a new stove. They, you know, the, the, Power is gone. The water's leaking. Whatever it is, you know, it it, it tends to be a lot more hands-on, a lot more capital-intensive or labor-intensive than um, uh, than owning shares.
1: Yeah. Wow. So all that to say, you've had a lot of experience. And what are you doing today? Let's talk about your yeah, fund. Yeah. So
2: so well, we don't have a fund. We actually have eight or nine funds. Um, across the spectrum. So we have a a team run by um, Dominic Rose and Gary Rollo uh, who run a small companies fund. Um, We have another team based out of Boca Raton in Florida that have been running uh, international funds and US funds Um, for over 33 years. In fact, we've got Brett Craig who runs uh, the Aura High Yield SME Fund. It's a private credit fund, so it doesn't invest in equities at all. Uh, What he does is he has seven firms that lend money uh, to 19 different uh, sectors of the economy to small and medium-sized corporates. So, you know, there there are some funds that we distribute through Montgomery in Australia that have done extraordinarily well um, but they're across the spectrum, small caps, large caps, international small caps, uh, international large companies, as well as private credit.
1: Yeah. Awesome. And just full disclosure, everyone, I've actually just invited Roger on to have a chat. Uh, there's been no money exchange, it's not oh, an ad or anything like that. So Indeed. we're just chatting con- conceptually. And I just wanted to let everyone know what Roger does in his day job. Now, what is a value investor?
2: Mm, great question. People's answer to that question um, is as varied as the people answering the question. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what I think most people, how most people would answer that. They would say they're looking for businesses that are cheaper than what they're worth. Well, they're looking for value. Um, And really, the whole value investing uh, thematic or the whole value investing tribe uh, really was founded by a guy named Benjamin Graham. Uh, who also became Warren Buffett's lecturer. And and the idea is that uh, businesses have an intrinsic value. They have a value that they're worth something. So the best way I can explain it is to say, well, okay, let's Let's take that bank account that I referred to earlier, Glenn. You know, it's a special bank account. The government has said, Roger, uh, we're really, really happy with the work that you've done for investors. We want to anoint you with this bank account. It's got a million dollars in it uh, and it's going to be generating 20% for the rest of your life every year. Now, in an environment where all the other bank accounts in the world are only generating 4% or 5%, for example, then this is clearly a very valuable asset. So what if, we, what if we auctioned it off, Glenn? What if we took it to Shannon's, for example, or you know, one of the art auctioneers, Deutscher and Hackett, for example? We said, look, we've got this million dollar bank account. Um, we want to sell it in the marketplace. Well, it's worth at least four times a normal bank account. Because a normal bank account only pays 4% or 5%. Let's say it's 5% for the purposes of the argument. So for an investor to be happy with a 5% return, they'd be willing to pay four times the money that's in the bank account, right? They'd be more than happy to to pay that. So because if they pay $4 million for that $1 million bank account, they'll end up with a 5% return Mm. because the bank account is always paying 20% on a million right so but here's the thing that's that's what it's worth if they want to equalize it with a bank account earning 5% but it could be it could be that when we go to the auction room um, next week it could be that people are really really excited about i don't know this this it's the the bank account is is run by ai or you know and there's a, you know there's it's currently really popular at the moment and it might be that when we turn up when we turn up at the auction house It's full, There's standing room only, we can hardly get in, there's thousands of people that are bidding for this thing, and then you end up with two people who just decide to show off at the auction, and they just want to pay more than the other guy, and they don't want to lose. And suddenly, we're selling this bank account for $50 million, just because people got super excited. Mm. That's the stock market, but that's not value, right? Value is saying, okay, well, the, the most I'm willing to pay, the most this is worth, is $4 $4 million, four times the money in the bank account. I think that's what it's worth. Value is buying it for $2 million. That would give me a 10% return. Mm-hmm. That's value investing, buying something for less than it's worth. Value is what you receive. Price is what you pay. Your job as a value investor is to pay a lower price than the value you receive. And that's true of anything. You know, when you go to a house auction, Mm. For example, people might have gone to a house auction and, you know, and or your parents did, you know, and they sit there and their arms are crossed, you know, and they're watching the auction and it goes for a a price that stuns everyone at the auction and someone shakes their head and they say, it's not worth that. You know, what they're doing is distinguishing between the price and the value. What they're saying is the price is what someone was willing to pay for it but it wasn't worth that. The value was something less than that. And that's what value investors are. They're always thinking about the difference between price and what something is worth.
1: So if I've got a, um, I don't know, an old bit of art that no one knows, the artist, it is an oil painting, it's legitimate and all that. And I'm actually speaking from experience because I've got a bit that, you know, it's a nice piece of art. It needs to be reframed. I have put it on marketplace at the moment, threw it out there, you know, $250 and no, no, I had one nibble, but it was a a bot, but like no nibbles. (laughs) So it's probably fair to say that it isn't worth 250 because the market isn't keen. But is it also fair to say when you're talking about companies, you can actually see clearly that this is actually cheaper than what it is actually worth?
2: Okay. We need to, Glenn, you have opened a Pandora's box here without probably even realizing it. Um, Let's just take a step back. Um, that painting might actually have a value to you that is higher than the price people are willing to pay. You said that people you haven't had a nibble, so people aren't willing to buy it for any positive value, positive price. I, I did also
1: put in the ad that it's of uh, Central Coast, you know, East Gosford, looking over Rumbalara Reserve. So we just hoping that someone locally wanted a local bit of yeah, yeah,
2: but the point is, the point is that the the price is not the value. The price is what people are willing to pay. You know, there was a, there, I talk about this in, in my book, but back in the um, tech boom, tech, the first tech bubble back in uh, early 2000, late 1999, in November of 1999, there was a company called NetJ.com. And it listed in the US on the over-the-counter bulletin board, which is a sort of a small caps, sort of over-the-counter uh, exchange um, and, and this company, NetJ.com, in there, in, they were they were basically relisting as a different type of business. The stock was already it already existed on the stock market, but they were redefining themselves. And what they get this, I'm not joking. They said in their prospectus, if you like, the equivalent of their prospectus, they said NetJ.com conducts no substantial business activity of any description and netj.com has no plans of conducting any substantial business activity of any description for the foreseeable future. So it was a remarkably consistent business model. Mm-hmm. They weren't they hadn't done anything, they weren't going to they aren't doing anything now, and they weren't going to do anything in the future. Um, now this thing went from I think it went from 50 cents to $8.88.
0: Mm.
2: Now someone was willing to pay $8.88 but that's not what it was worth because it wasn't doing anything. It was worth nothing. It was worth the amount of money in the bank that was being eroded by the director's fees as they were taking fees out for managing this thing.
1: But that also speaks to the hype. And, you know, when the crypto boom was going, a monkey could walk yeah. across a keyboard and make money.
2: Yeah, the point being that price is not what something is worth, price is what people pay, worth the value of something is very different. So you, in, in answer to your second question, yes, with companies, you can estimate what, what it is worth because there's a cash flow or a potential cash flow that flows from that business to you and you can value that income stream. Mm. And and then that raises a whole question about interest rates and what happens when interest rates go up versus down. When interest rates go up, those future cash streams are worth less today when interest rates go up. And so value falls, the value of everything goes down when interest rates go up. It doesn't mean the price will go down because people might still be willing to pay more for things, but the value of the thing goes down. The value of all assets falls when interest rates go up.
1: We will answer some questions uh, a little bit later, but I'll jump in with one from Wayne. And he wanted to know about explaining risk-adjusted returns. Sure. And I'm also thinking, I thought it was a different question, but it might tie in. Talk to us about value and a risk-free return in a rising interest rate environment and how all this kind of plays into the value of a company.
2: So the closest thing to a risk-free return is the US Treasury's um, government bonds, US Treasury bonds, or US Treasury bills. So there's an obligation on the US government to pay interest on its debt. And globally, they are seen as the safest bet. So the closest thing to risk-free is a government sovereign, a, a, a reliable and trustworthy government's sovereign debt. Um, Australia's also, Australia, the Australian government also has the power to tax its citizens. Uh, and so it's considered a reliable yeah. obligor and so that's risk-free. So let's say that the risk-free rate at the moment uh, is uh, the debt on a 10-year, Australian 10-year government bond, right? And so that might be 4%, call it 4% for, for argument's sake. So that's the risk-free return. Now, when you're investing in anything that has a higher risk than that, you're, you have to price in or you have to expect a higher return for the risk that you're taking because you are taking additional risk. And there's a spectrum of risk that goes from you know, government sovereign debt to large corporate debt to small corporate debt. Then there's equities, which has higher risk again. Why? Because in the what we call the capital stack, debt has to be paid off first. Secured debt has to be paid off first before equity return holders see any return on their money. Um, And equity is the lowest in the capital stack. So you want the highest return to compensate you for the highest risk. And people often forget that. So there are times in the market where the stock market is offering what we call an implied return or an implied yield that is lower than a sovereign government debt return. And that tells you that the market has got way ahead of itself, that it's too excited and it's forgotten the basic principles of investing. And often you can do really, if you just remember that rule, you can do really well timing your investment in the stock market and out.
1: Yeah, you. Um, I, I read this in the intro of the episode that in the very front of your book, part of the buyer was like... You'd be amused by the lack of common sense demonstrated in the investment world, because it is common sense in the selection of sound businesses that actually lead to returns.
2: Indeed, indeed, and and look, you know, we are as guilty as anyone else of of making mistakes. You know, and we go through periods of outperformance and maybe periods of underperformance as well. Uh, And a period of my own underperformance led me to um, retrench a team that that. Uh, were here and replaced that with a completely different team had been outperforming for 17 years. Mm. Um, and so that was relatively recently. Uh, and so, you know, you can get it wrong. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge to continually outperform. It is really, really hard to do.
1: Just for my own curiosity, and it's not really relevant to anything, I just, you know, jumped into my mind. So Ooh. your Aussie equity fund, uh, say large cap, you know, what type of money... Do you like? Are you mainly doing high net worth family offices, yes. super funds, like
2: a bit of both actually? So yeah. we have a we have funds that are dedicated to those for those investors, um, but we also have funds for people investing twenty twenty thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars. Right. right. Um, even the even the guys, uh, our team uh, at Poland Capital, based in Boca Raton in Florida, who have about eighty, you know, eighty five billion US under management and i mentioned earlier their you know their flagship fund which has outperformed the market for 3 decades um they'll take investment of $20,000 so mm. you know um investors who've who've got um the wherewithal to put a relatively small amount of money into a large fund can do so
1: yeah awesome hey we'll take a quick break and when we get back we're going to talk about how the current financial climate might be affecting traditional, quote unquote, quality companies. And just for everyone listening, uh, we don't do this much on the podcast, but we are recording this on June the 7th at about lunchtime. And this episode is going up on June the 8th. So when I get someone on like Roger and we are talking, uh, we want it to be quite current. So it's not put in the canned for three weeks and then thrown up and then, you know, overnight <laughs> Commonwealth Bank collapsed or something like that. So we like to be
3: relevant. So we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click Get Help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click Get Help.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Okay, Roger, quickly in one sentence, because I didn't ask you, the opposite of a value investor, what would the direct opposite be? A speculator.
2: Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, just to add a little bit to that conversation, you know, there's no point, for example, valuing a rubbish company. Mm. You know, a company that's unprofitable. Um, you know, I call them profitless prosperity. We've just come out of a period where we saw a boom in profitless prosperity stocks. So companies that were trading at multiples of their revenue and were never going to make a profit—they were just bad business ideas that had money thrown at them and were supporting them. You know, it was really the altruism of their their investors that continued to support them, and now we're seeing huge layoffs. So there's there's no you know, business that's not going to ever produce a profit is worth zero. Its share price might go up, and you might be tempted to participate in that fad um, and all that excitement. But just remember, you're speculating; you're not investing. So, what what we do is focus on quality businesses. We're going to talk about that soon, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just on that speculation, Mm. I mean, I reckon when I started this podcast in 2018, I made the call, and I, you know, I said it at the time. um, Not sure about Tesla; it hasn't made a cent. Mm. Um, someone reminded me the other day, I made that comment. Uh, number one, don't get your advice from me. Number two, bit of a unicorn maybe, but Tesla, like the rest is history. That was hugely speculative to invest in because at the time in 2018, if a company didn't produce an income, you know, you're flipping a coin.
2: Yeah, let's, let's not get – and, Glenn, that story hasn't – that book hasn't finished yet. Glenn. Yeah. The story of Tesla isn't over yet. Um, the economics of making cars aren't very good, mm.
1: right? I, I've also said, um, Roger, on previous podcasts, and someone will remind me of this in eight years, I'm sure, that I actually think now the incumbents are waking up – like your Toyotas, you know they've been making hybrid cars for twenty or more years. Mm. Once the incumbents wake up and go one hundred percent electric, we'll see. I think yeah. we'll see Tesla pivot maybe to battery tech only or a huge part of the business. I'm not sure. I know the car quality. There's a heap of crap online where they're actually crap quality. Um, yeah. So
2: so UBS UBS uh, did what's called a takedown of a Tesla. Uh, and um, they, it ranked the lowest uh, mm-hmm. in terms of build quality. Um, but but to, to actually support your um, original thesis, you know, that it was speculative, mm. at the time it was. Uh, and if you'd said the same thing about 50 other technology businesses that weren't profitable, you got 49 of them right, Glenn. Yeah. You know, so um, you know, just remember in the long run, in the long run, businesses that don't make profit are ultimately worth nothing. Mm. And then in terms of Tesla specifically, the, the jury has not settled on lithium-ion batteries yet as being the dominant technology. We don't know if in 10 or 15 yeah. years' time it's lithium-ion batteries that drive electric vehicles. It may be some other tech, um, and there's a lot of research going, This is the this is the problem um, investing in technology. Historically, whether it's been... The, the the automobile when Carl Benz drove the for, first horseless carriage around the Daimler um, Daimler Benz, you know, drove it around a park because he invented that vehicle in the late 1800s to promenade. Promenading was something you did. You dressed up. You got a you got a brolly and you went walked around parks in your best dress and your best outfits and you simply just nodded at everybody. And he thought, well, I'm going to get everyone to look at me. I'm going to drive this horseless carriage. Around the park, and everyone would be looking at me. And in fact, it was his wife, Berta. She stole the vehicle and drove it to another town, had to refill it. A pharmacist had to get alcohol, refill the vehicle, drove it to another town, bought some groceries, and drove back. It was a woman who invented modern transport. It wasn't Carl Benz, it was his wife, Betty or Berta, who actually worked out what to do with the thing. Mm. Um, but, But here's the point had you been there that day? When he when he released the horseless carriage, you you might not have made any money, even though it transformed the world. There's been something like 1,200 car manufacturers in the United States that have all gone broke.
1: Yeah, right.
2: And and the same with television. Airlines have collectively lost hundreds of billions of dollars over their life, and it's transformed the world. The thing with technology is often it's the consumer that ends up better off, not necessarily the investor. So Tesla's story, that that story is not finished yet. Yeah, it's still particularly,
1: been you know, I've been down YouTube rabbit holes on hydrogen and it's actually, it seems like a better technology. And then also like the F1 are now doing this eco fuel yes, because they're like, we're gosh. not doing batteries. Yeah, yes. like-
2: Well, imagine, imagine, and, and I, I, you may know more about those technologies than I do. I think there are some questions about- net positive energy coming from hydrogen at the moment, you know, it mm. requires a lot of energy to produce it. Um, and so you want a net positive uh, energy uh, equation. But with the with the eco-fuel, you know, the, the carbon-free petrol, uh, I don't know how they do that, by the way, because chem- chemically, the only thing that attaches to carbon is hydrogen, and then you end up in that same position we just talked about a moment ago. But if Porsche, uh, working with F1, actually come up with a winner if they find the solution well you think about that that puts at least for a few more decades that pretty much kills the growth of electric vehicles because uh, because what it does is it, you know we use the existing infrastructure people don't need to replace their cars the existing infrastructure for delivering petrol already uh, is already dominant uh, and so we just start putting that new fuel through that network and you know, everyone's happy.
1: Yeah, so what's this space? Now, yeah. traditionally quality companies, you know, how are they faring in this current financial climate? What do we need to look out for? And I'll throw another question in there, you know, do the rules of yesterday still apply to the rules of today with high inflation? So, maybe you could use some real examples of some what a quality company is that you would say or hold yourself in the portfolio that you manage. So, I'll just leave you with that fodder like the current climate inflation? Are we using the same rules to value or look at a quality company today than yesterday?
2: I think the rules for investing in quality businesses are immutable. Um, they're not going to change. right? The, the the description I gave you earlier of how a business creates wealth by generating a high rate of return on its equity and retaining a large portion of that that, that will always exist, even if the stock market was turned off. You know, that's that's still going to be the case. That's how people are going to end up on the AFR's Rich 200 list. They're going to be starting businesses that generate high rates of return and they're going to reinvest the profits. Um, and that's how they're going to create wealth. That will still occur. Now, whether the stock market's turned on or off doesn't really matter. You know, the stock market is really just a place where people decide what price, how to price these things. Um, it doesn't change the value of them and it doesn't change whether they're going to um, generate wealth or not. So in a high inflation environment, what tends to happen, of course, is there's a response to that high inflation from the regulators or from central banks. Central banks are given a mandate. Um, uh, often it used to be one mandate and that was to keep inflation between 2 and 3% um, or keep it down. There's a reason for that and I'll tell you that in a minute. And the second mandate um, is to maintain full employment. So there's a you know a dual purpose to particularly the Reserve Bank and the US Federal Reserve and that's what they have to do. Now, their response... Uh, to high inflation is to bring it down by raising interest rates. Why do we want to bring inflation down? Because your, the value of the things that you can buy declines when inflation is high. So if you're on, if your wages, for example, are rising at two or three percent a year, but inflation's ten percent a year, at the end of the year you can't afford to buy as much as you could at the beginning of the year. So your standard of living has declined. And to maintain a, a standard of an acceptable standard of living, it's incumbent on central banks to keep inflation below, um, let's say, they've decided 2 or 3%. Uh, and at the moment, when it's above that, rates have to go up to bring people's expectations of future inflation down. And the way that they do that is by hurting people with higher interest rates to get them to stop spending as much. Mm. Now, it's not easy. It's a blunt instrument and to every man with a hammer the problem is a nail so you know you, you believe that you can fix it with interest rates if the only thing the only tool you've got is moving interest rates and so central banks can only move interest rates that's what they're trying to do and is as, as I said it's a blunt instrument so you get situations for example where people are pulling their heads in and they're not spending as much but companies are still charging a lot for their product. Um, to maintain margins. And we've seen a lot of companies uh, just in the recent reporting season uh, come out and report record profit margins, their gross margin. The difference between the price they sell their product for and what they buy that product for is at a record. It's even higher than it was before COVID. Um, and that's because they're just charging more. So they're having a bit of a lend, um, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a profit grab uh, and um, and they're gouging. Some businesses are actually gouging. And I know, for example, one business, I won't name it because I'm going to speak um, unfavourably about it, but I I know a business that sells a food product and its core ingredient in that food product has gone from about $6 a kilo to about $1.70 a kilo. And yet the price they sell that product for, they've increased it from $22 a kilo to $25 a kilo. Mm-hmm. So even though the input has gone from 6 to $1 or $1.70, the price they're selling it for has been increased substantially. And that sort of thing's been happening a lot. Now, in terms of quality businesses and what's happened to quality businesses in that environment, I tend to believe, and, and I'm sure it's true for many uh, value and quality investors, that a quality business is a business that's going to be larger in the future than it is today. It's going to be able to grow its profits. So they tend to be seen as growth companies as well. And in a rising interest rate environment, the growth stocks, growth companies have been hit the hardest. So it's actually the case that the highest quality businesses have been hit the hardest, fallen the most, and are therefore the best value at the moment. But we're just going to have to wait, and I don't know when it will be, uh, that the appetite for investing in those companies comes back. But when it does, it tends to come back fast you tend not to be able to anticipate it. Before you know it, these stocks have run up very, very hard.
1: Mm. So what are some companies that you're loving right now in Australia?
2: Well, one of them that we quite like, it's quite boring at the moment. And remember, this is not a recommendation to go out and buy, um, but it's because we own it, by the way. So you don't want to go out and buy it because you help us uh, if you go out and buy it. But uh, one is a business called Transurban, uh, which most people would know if they pay tolls in Australia, what we like about this particular business, it has a mountain of debt. You might think, well, that's odd. Why do you like that? Well, it, it has a very reliable income stream to be able to meet its obligations on that debt. And what it's done is it's it's hedged or fixed the interest rates that it pays on the bulk of that debt. Uh, last year, it hedged a lot of it at very, very low rates. So its its debt is now, if you like, fixed at a very low rate but its tolls are linked to inflation. Mm. So it's allowed to raise its tolls by the inflation rate for about 68% of its tolls. And the other 27 or so percent, there's another 27% of its revenue that is is indexed at 4.25%. So it's fixed its debt. If you think about a business where your interest bill is fixed it, 2% percent or three percent, but your revenue is rising at a minimum of 4.25 percent and up to seven percent or eight percent per year, well, suddenly your margin is going to go up. Here's the other thing we like about this particular business. Their contracts with government, you know, when they agree to buy these roads and then the agreement for the tolls and how they raise, the tolls can't go down when inflation goes down. They can only go up. Mm. So you might think as a driver, that's horrible, that's terrible, you know, I hate that. Well, don't drive on the toll road, but that's the agreement that the government uh, has made with Transurban uh, or state governments have made with Transurban. And so their profit is going to rise and surprise the market by how much it's going to rise by.
1: Here's one for the asset allocation nerds, Transurban, are you putting it in Aussie equity, infrastructure or 50-50?
2: Uh, well, for us, it's uh, we don't we don't we don't label them this way. Um, uh, they're in our Aussie large cap uh, portfolios.
1: Yeah, and I think just more of a side note, like the differences between asset allocations in different super funds yes. may treat
2: they will well, they'll as yeah,
1: assets differently. It's a it's a bloody Pandora's box.
2: Yeah, if you're a um, Glenn, if you're a, an infrastructure fund manager, you know you may only have six things you know, in your six things in your portfolio. And so Transurban could be 20% of the, you know, of of your fund. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for somebody else, you know, it might just be 1% of their portfolio um, because they've got better things and more exciting things that they want to invest in. They might be a growth manager. And while Transurban is growing, and I've just described how it's going to be growing, um, there are other things that they can see that are growing faster. So they might have a smaller allocation to that. Yeah, so the capital allocation or the asset weighting uh, in a portfolio, will be very much dependent on the mandate of the fund manager.
1: So, for example, when you manage a large cap Aussie fund, obviously you've got your own mandates in the background. Like, you're not going to have fifty percent of the fund in infrastructure.
2: Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there'll be a, there'll be an a, and and I don't manage the fund. So Sean, Allen, Dan uh, uh, manage um, the. Uh, the Montgomery Fund, the Montgomery Private Fund. They took over the management of that back in October. And uh, and then Dom and Gary managed the small companies fund. But yes, they will, they will not only think about the weightings to individual stocks, but they'll also ask, well, what is the weighting of that stock in the market, in mm-hmm. the index? Um, because for example, if let's say the index, the small cap index has a, for argument's sake, a 10% weighting to gold stocks. Well, it might be that you and I have no no appreciation for gold stocks at all and um, we don't have a view on gold either. Well, what's the right exposure to gold? If we're trying to beat the market, the right exposure is 10% mm. because we don't want to be overweight, we don't want to be underweight because we don't know enough about it. So we're just going to neutralise that risk. But if we have a view that about that particular sector, um, that is that it's going to outperform another sector, we may overweight that particular sector versus another. We're really getting into, you know, we're really getting into the minutiae of managing portfolios now.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like for me, you know, I'm primarily an index investor, mm. but there's no way on the planet I would buy a small cap index fund because- Yes. 101, you need to be active with screening like more so than the big stuff. That's just what I think. Like no one on the planet I'll do small cap well, index.
2: More than half of Australian small cap managers beat the index. Mm. And the reason is the index has a lot of exploration companies, you know, mining exploration companies that ultimately go under. They don't yeah. raise enough money. They don't find any, you know, anything prospective in the ground. You know, all they've got is four white flags on, on pegs. Uh, and they're hoping there's some, you know, cross your fingers, and there might be something underground. Um, mm. And and most of them don't find what they expected to find. And yeah. so, if you can remove those, you should be able to outperform the the index over the long run.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Any other little uh, darlings that you like at the moment?
2: Oh, look, I I actually think that um, you know a business like ARB is being treated by other investors. Uh, As a uh, what we call a pro-cyclical company, in other words, it's going to go up and down with the economy. And because people are worried about um, a recession in Australia at the moment, uh, and worried about a recession globally, then discretionary purchases like bull bars and aftermarket four-wheel drive accessories—you know—most investors are thinking, "Yeah, I don't want to own a business that sells that." But what we also know that this is a business that's rolling out stores globally, particularly in the United States. So hopefully hopefully the share price goes down a lot uh, and we can buy more of it at a cheap price. Now that might sound odd. You know, why, do, why, if, why if you're an investor, do you want prices to go down? Well, because as a net purchaser, you want to be able to buy things cheaper.
1: I, I have a particular interest in ARB. I'm looking out my window at my Ranger. Now, <laughs> one thing that I'm particularly interested in um, with that brand, you know, if you are a full driver or a camper and all that, categorically, it's actually better than a lot of the crap that you see, you know, from-
2: Yeah, quality matters. Yeah, like absolute
1: quality matters. And the fun fact, ARB now, if you buy a brand new Ford Ranger or Everest, ARB are the preferred actual supplier for the, quote unquote, Ford. Like you walk into Ford, it's called OEM. Yeah, like they're literally using ARB.
2: So when you sit down with a Ford dealer, and this happens in the United States now as well, when you sit down to spec out your car, you know, you sit down and you say, I'd like air conditioning, I'd like heated seats, I want the heated steering wheel, whatever it is that you want, um, power windows, although that's standard now. Yeah,
1: showing, I think air is stand pretty standard nerd. as
2: well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so so when you're speccing out your car, your four-wheel drive, you can get side rails, you know, side steps, for example, or you can get tow hooks, um, on your four wheel drive, and and so you sit down with a Ford dealer and you tick that box. That's a that's an ARB product that's automatically going on that car, um, and so you know ARB is transforming from being a purely aftermarket four wheel drive accessory supplier to being integrated with the manufacturers.
1: It's an Aussie company, isn't it? Like it is day an Aussie one. company. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, Roger and uh, the the Brown brothers, Roger and his mm. brother, um, they've been running. Uh, they've been running that business for for decades yep. now yep. Uh, and it's been growing. And so there's a business that might just suffer from a share price collapse because people think of it as a discretionary um, purchase item, which, which it is, but ultimately it will be growing its store footprint and growing its presence globally. So I think in 10 years' time, it's fairly safe to say it'll be much more valuable than where it is today.
1: I've got some old man emu springs on my ranger. Now, one last little darling that twinkles your eye when you're going to bed at night, and you whisper to your wife good night, and you also whisper to this company good night.
2: Yeah. So um, a business like um, there's one that we're purchasing at the moment, so I can't just disc- sure. can't tell you about that one. Um, but you know, another one long term that I think is going to be absolutely fantastic is Cochlear. Mm. Um, and the reason why is that we've got a you know we've got a cohort. Of people at the moment, you know, cochlear uh, cochlear implants um, were traditionally for you know for children who were born with hearing disabilities, and what we're finding now is that the you know, the, the company is expanding into um, the baby boomer demographic, if you like, um, rather than yeah just children. That is obviously a, a larger market for them. The problem that they're confronting at the moment is that a lot of baby boomers who are losing their hearing because, you know, they they were the first generation to go to very loud concerts um, and, you know, and all to use tools without earmuffs. uh, What Cochlear is finding is that there's a reluctance uh, for any, for those older people. They're just happy to accept that they've lost their hearing. You know, they don't want to spend money doing that. Not for everyone, but what we're going to find is that as the younger tribe of baby boomers move through they'll be more passionate about maintaining their health uh, and their faculties uh, and they're likely to actually spend the money uh, on it so we'll see a slow burn uh, as that market has penetrated but it is a much much bigger market than the one that they were originally in and so we think its potential over the next you know 15 or 20 years is enormous
1: Yeah, awesome. Now, if you're out there getting the heebie jeebies like, oh, I've got to go buy Cochlear and ARB and bloody transurban, well, chill out for 10 seconds because you've already got exposure to them in your super fund. If you've got an ASX 200 fund that's in it, you've already got exposure. And for me as an investor, I've learned that as much as I hear Roger talk about these companies, I want to go in and buy and, you know, make money. I just think, no, 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 I've already got exposure. What I teach is if you do want to buy individual stocks, maybe only carve out 10% of your portfolio. The rest, keep your freaking mitts off it. And um, (laughs) like, that's what I do. But, you know, this whole index versus active thing, Mm. there's a question and we can kind of start to move into some questions. Lockie said, in your opinion, what's the value of choosing to invest money with a fund versus a series of low cost ETFs? Yep. especially when we're told that 80% of fund managers don't outperform the market in the long term.
2: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that it's always 80%. Sure. And I do know, for example, Poland, who've outperformed the market for 33 years, we distribute their funds in Australia. I've, um, Australian Eagle, Sean Allen and Dan, who've outperformed for 17 years. So my view is I want the opportunity to do better. I don't mm. want to do average. And so, so I want some exposure to a team of people who are going to work really, really hard to filter the market down to a group of companies that can do better, that can generate wealth at an accelerating rate. And it's, I, I think it's a flawed argument to say, and it's not quite 80%, but let's say it was. I think it's a flawed argument to say, do you know what? Because 80% underperform, I'm not going to invest in the other 20%. Mm. I'm going to completely ignore all 100% because 80% don't. And and the argument, the response to that would be, well, it's just really hard to find the 20%. Well, I've just mentioned two. I've just made that job a bit easier. Mm. Um, So it concerns me that people are just writing off uh, active management completely and saying, I'm not even going to find the 20%. I'm not even going to invest in those because the 80 don't. Um, And and I just think what that does is it ensures the average return.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of this has been centred around fees And particularly in my book, everyone who's read that super section, you know, there was a fund that everyone was told to buy into with their super that was a low cost index option in that fund. Hmm. If you would have spent more money and purchased the active fund in the same super house, you would have got a better return over the last 10 years.
2: There you go. You know, I I find it curious sometimes that, you know, I can can show someone a fund that's, you know, it's outperformed for 10 years and it's beaten the market by, let's say, 6% per annum. Right after fees, it's outperformed the market by six percent per annum. After fees, and people will still say to me, Oh, yeah, I just don't want to pay those fees. Mm. But hang on a sec, you're beating the market for 10 years by six percent after fees. So that's after the fee's been paid, you're still beating the market. Oh, no, I don't, I, I want a low cost fee option, a low fee option. Well, I don't, I personally don't care about the fee. All I care about is what the net result is. Mm. Um, And so, you know, we talked earlier about not investing, not letting tax drive your investment decision-making. I don't think fees should drive the decision-making. I think you should make sound investment decisions independently of what the fee is. Um, you know someone once famously said you know you, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Um, and uh, it was actually an architect by the way who told me that. Um, so it wasn't to do with investing. yeah um, but you know I think I think it's really I think there's merit in index funds for a lot of people, but I also think for a lot of people there's merit in some active exposure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and as I said, I most of my holdings are broad-based index. I've resolved myself. I'm happy with the index return. I just, I focus on earning lots of money and shoveling the money into the
2: funds. Yeah. That's I all think I that's do. That's right. And what you can do to boost your return is you can apply, for example, a dollar cost averaging strategy. Yeah. Right. Or you can apply what I what I coined once and invented it, published it in the Australian many, many years ago, dollar crash averaging. Yeah. So it's dollar cost averaging, but when the market crashes, you, you add even more. Right. You say so,
1: are we catching a falling knife for a period of months? Indeed, indeed, yep. you will.
2: You know, yep. but, but remember, if you're a net buyer, and so if you're in your 30s at the moment, let's say you're in your 20s or 30s, you've got you've got potentially 60 years of expenses that you have to fund, and mm. you can only fund that with growth. Um, and so you know that even if the market were to fall, uh, it's over that period of time, it's going to recover. Uh, and you just keep adding to your portfolio, you want cheaper prices. As a net buyer, if, if I said to you, Glenn, uh, in 12 months' time, you're going to be buying a boat, do you want boats to go up in price between now and then, or do you want them to go down? You want them to go down.
1: Always. I've got a boat in my front yard and right. I want it to be cheaper.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so um, it's the same with investing in, in equities or investing in the market. Um, you want prices to go down if you're a net buyer. You know, and so you can buy more at the cheaper price.
1: As you heard at the start of the episode, like Global X are a show partner on our Thursday shows, there is a place for index ETF, particularly around the themes. For example, we mentioned the AI theme, or there might be a robotics theme or, you know, insert your theme here, hydrogen theme or whatnot. You've probably got more chance of finding an ETF provider to get into that theme than an active manager in that theme. So it could be a way to get exposure. And I mean, just, and with themes as well, this is Anki Glenn talking to all my kitties who are listening. Um, I'm also not putting all my chickens in an egg themed basket or whatever that saying is, you know what I mean? We're keeping our themed exposure. And Global X, they knew when they came on as a show partner, I said, I can never tell anyone to put all their money in one of your funds. They're like, absolutely not. It's not the point. Um, It's about exposure to trends and themes?
2: If you, and you have to be, you have to, you have to apply the investment in thematics um, with some caution, because if you don't trust yourself to invest in an individual stock, what makes you think you're going to time the thematic appropriately as well? Mm. Uh, And that's why diversification is really important. But, you know, once you get into a once you're in a a thematic, uh, then, you know, timing is everything because event, you know, often themes suffer from fads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, you need to know when it's time to get out. Uh, and that requires, you know, that you're no longer passive. You are now active, believe mm-hmm. it or not.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there is actually no such thing as a passive investor because every decision we make is an active choice. Indeed, by definition. And, That's right. you know, you buy an, an indexed fund. Well, if it's a blended portfolio, someone's actively chosen the asset allocation. So. yeah
2: yeah Glenn and, and and it's you know it's great that you I, I, you know hats off to you um, because you know you've got an active manager on your program uh, and you know I've got a completely different view which is you know I want to try and outperform and I don't mind if in the short term I underperform but long term I think I can identify the talented people that are going to outperform uh, and I'm happy to back that mm. idea uh, and so, I, you know, I will invest in direct equities and I'll invest in direct or actively managed funds.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go, Ron. i got a bloody fox in the hen house. Run. <laughs> Run, everyone. Uh, let's finish up with a couple of questions that Roger has picked from the big list. But I wrote down something. You started talking about it. It was mentioned in your book, Don't Invest in Commodities and Commodity Businesses. Yes. And you talk about the airlines and sure. COVID hit, airlines plummeted, back the truck up, put money in, smash and grab. That's cute. But when we're talking longer term as a company to invest in, why do you say that we don't invest in commodity businesses?
2: Yeah. It's important to distinguish commodity businesses from a commodity-like product.
1: Yeah. Like coffee or gold or- yeah
2: the. the- when we talk about commodities we're talking about businesses that have no pricing power right and for airlines often you know often people are choosing to travel based on price you know they don't care if it's Qantas or Virgin or Etihad or or JAL you know they don't care they just are looking for the cheapest price Mm -hmm. so that's a commodity type product and the other problem that airlines have is that they're extremely capital intensive right you know that the The tyres, you know, one tyre on a small commercial plane, one tyre is $40,000, you know, and think about how many tyres they go through. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, they're they're a capital-intensive business. They are a labour-intensive business. The labour tends to be unionised, so it's very difficult to get your cost base down. You've also got competitors who get their fuel for free because the competitor is owned by you know, an, a royal family in the Middle East somewhere, so they don't have to pay for their fuel. And then whenever an airline goes broke, there's always a form, former Formula One driver who wants to have their name on the tail of a plane and launches an airline. You know, so you've got irrational competition as well. You know, It's cheaper to fly to Melbourne from Sydney than it is to ride a bike down mm. there. You know, and and while that might be sustainable, um, it's not economically sensible. Uh, and so, you know, for me, um, airlines are really, really tough businesses. Now, Qantas has defied all my predictions about how bad airlines are, but the economics of that business have been artificially supported by the fact that very few planes have been purchased in the time the current CEO or the former CEO had been at the helm, and now. Uh, It's been announced that your analysts are estimating that the airline will have to buy 300 planes. You know, it's going to cost more than the total market capitalization of the airline to buy all of those planes. And guess what? He's left that job to a new CEO to do.
1: He, um, he knew that this needs rebuilding and I'm not your guy.
2: <laughs> well, I think it's no coincidence. He's also sold, you know, $17 million worth of shares um, just recently. Yeah, you know, um, and, and, and you know, that's been officially that's, you know, for property reasons to be able to buy a property or pay down debt on another property or whatever. Um, but the timing's not coincidental.
1: Mm, there you go, everyone. So I was once told, and particularly in any businesses that I've run and, you know, even this business, be a price maker, not a price taker. And, you know, if people want to pay for advertising on My Millennial Money, we're expensive. I'm not conforming to the lowest common thing or competing with other things. I'm not desperate for money. But if you want to advertise with us or partner with us, this is the price. Like I'm not the cheapest and that's okay. And I often think when we're looking at businesses, Qantas and airlines, they're price takers. It's just race to the bottom.
2: Well, yeah. At the moment, they're not. You know, um, uh, all credit where credit's due. Alan Joyce has done an absolutely remarkable job managing what is a horrible business to manage.
1: Yeah, you know, and Qantas and- probably is a, an outlier there. You know, I'm probably more talking budget airlines in Europe or Asia.
2: Yeah, I, I think you know, I think Alan Joyce in a business that has great economics. Watch out. You know, I'm really interested to see where he pops up next. Um, in which business? You know, if he turned up at CSL or Cochlear or, or somewhere, you know, or, or a small cap, you know, that had great growth prospects, you know, watch out because you know he's a very talented CEO. Um, he's in a, you know, he's in a, he was constantly plugging holes in the boat uh, that he was, you know, running or steering. If he gets a boat that doesn't have any holes in it, you know, I think that's going to be a terrific investment opportunity for investors. So watch where he pops up next.
1: So that leads into key person risk for a company. And we know a famous, you know, international portfolio manager in Australia, bit of a fall from grace, or whatever you want to say, sure. and, and the fund took a bit of a tank. Um, you know that key person risk with funds management, segueing from the Alan or CEO key person risk. Sure, that's obviously one thing that keeps a fund manager
2: like yourself up at night. Um, the way I think about it is this: the performance of a fund. Yeah, you know, is often due to three things: process, philosophy, and people. Three P's. Right? They're, the, they're the three things. Now, when you buy into a fund, you're buying a portfolio of shares. If a person um, leaves the firm, you've still got that portfolio of shares. You just have to decide whether or not you want the remaining team to manage it or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, in most most funds, have daily liquidity, so you can get out with a day's notice. So, you know, if you don't like the announcement that the CEO has left or that the portfolio manager has left or whatever, um, then you just get out. Mm. You know, it's no big deal. You're you're not locked in there for the next 15 years and, you know, crossing your fingers hoping that the next person's going to be as good. You can make a decision, an active decision to exit, review uh, and invest elsewhere if that's what you want to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All good. All right. Two quick questions. Daniel Quinn Uh, regular pest in the Facebook group, and he's about to come on the podcast and do a My Millennial story. Investing in shares, debt, how much do the debt ratios impact their share buying decisions? Looking forward to it. So I think he's asking you about how you uh, view debt and impacting your buying decisions. Well,
2: the very highest quality businesses ultimately by definition don't need debt Mm -hmm. You know, I used to go. I used to go to a lot of company briefings, um, and there'd be junior analysts, younger analysts, that come to these briefings, and they'd say, "Oh, you." They'd say to the CEO or the CFO, "You've got a lazy balance sheet. You don't have any debt." And and what that was that was a reflection of the fact that the analysts knew that by leveraging up the balance sheet, the business can get a better return for shareholders, for investors, for owners of the business. Because if you've got $10 of equity, it's like buying a house, right? Banks lend you equity. They lend you money. So you've got a lot of debt, a small amount of equity. And if the price of the house goes up, you make a big return on your small amount of equity, Mm. right? And and so junior analysts, young analysts will often look at a company's balance sheet and say, oh, their balance sheet is uh, under leveraged. You know, they could lever it up and get a better return for owners of the business. But good quality businesses, by definition, have often passed that stage They don't need any debt. You know, they've Mm. they've borrowed money in the past and paid it off. They don't need more. Um, So, you know, the very highest quality businesses have relatively modest amounts of debt or often no debt um, because they just don't need it. They can generate very high rates of return on equity and just reinvest their profits um, rather than pay the profits out as a dividend and then borrow money to replace the capital that's been paid out.
1: So what you're saying is, like, debt, full stop, it depends. Full stop. <laughs> well, because like the Transurban the- story, yes, debt no problem, locked in, low cost, offset by um, tolls that can only increase yeah,
2: reliable income streams. Correct. Uh,
1: it's not you know overcooked. Like they're not you know overcooking yeah. with the debt, bit of debt, whatever.
2: I would um, say I would tend to say, with the exception of Transurban, sure, as as an example, um, uh, you know, less is more when it comes mm. to debt. Yep. Less is better. because it does raise the risk. It also makes the share prices more sensitive um, to any kind of downgrade to earnings. The more debt a company has, uh, historically, the more volatile the share price has been as well. So, it does Mm. increase risk for investors.
1: All right. Next question, Matty Isaacs asks about EBITDA. EBITDA. And for those who might be new to the money world, it's an acronym, E-B-I-T-D-A, and he wants to know, is it all that important? So, just... Talk to us about earnings before income tax. And what's the DA stand for?
2: Depreciation amortization. I'll come to that in a sec. So you've got you've got revenue, then you've got EBITDA. So you've got, you know, you've got your gross profit, then you've got your EBITDA, then you've got your EBIT, and then you've got your net profit. So think about it cascading down through a profit and loss statement. And what EBITDA is, it's earnings before the interest, the tax the depreciation and the amortization. So what it is, it's an estimate. It's a very quick, uh, rough and ready estimate of what the operating profit of the business is. If you took out the financing of the debt, if you took out the tax, if you took out the depreciation and amortization, which are accounting constructs, um, so you know, depreciation is the the um, the wearing out of physical assets and amortization is the wearing out of intangible assets, um, and so if you take all those things out, what's the operating business look like? And so often often businesses and analysts will care about the EBITDA number because it tells you how the business is operating. But, you know, the, the tooth fairy doesn't pay the tax um, and the interest and the depreciation and the amortisation, you know, even though accounting tries to estimate the depreciation of a plane, for example, for an airline, it's based on the historical cost of the plane. The plane might have been bought 15 years ago and depreciation is based on that. But when you buy a new plane, it's going to be much more expensive. So, you know, some analysts say, well, depreciation is actually underestimating the cost of a business with lots of fixed assets. Anyway, I didn't want this to be an accounting lesson, um, but EBITDA is just a an estimate, if you like, an accountant's attempt at estimating the operating profit of the business.
1: Mm. Well, we might wrap it up. We'll have to get you back on again in a few months.
2: Well, yeah, and I'd encourage everyone to ask some more questions. You know, happy to answer
1: those questions. Like, I I love these conversations and I will apologise to Roger and all our listeners, but, you know, Roger and I were talking in December of last year and Sometimes if I personally organise someone to come on the podcast, it never gets done and I just need to learn, yes, come on, talk to Rach, she'll make it happen. So, And, and,
2: and Glenn, what I wanted to talk to you about back yeah. then, I'd written an article for The Australian to say now is the time to be investing because, you know, PE ratios and stocks had fallen precipitously um, but since then the market, you know, the NASDAQ particularly is up nearly 20% mm. um, and so, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more sanguine now. Uh, about possible returns from the market broadly. Mm. Um, But yeah, let's do it again in a few months and we might have another opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just in finishing anything that you want to get off your chest, anything else? And if you don't have anything else, tell me how I can make more money.
2: I think the most important ingredient is patience. Mm. Now, businesses take years to create wealth whether you're investing directly in businesses, whether you're investing with an active manager who invests in those businesses, or whether you're investing in an index fund that is investing in those businesses, you are investing in businesses and they take years. That process of creating wealth takes years, not minutes. So turn the stock market off and let businesses do their thing.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Radio Roger Montgomery, uh, your website uh, for any resources or articles or writings?
2: So if people want to if people want to read um, about what's going on in markets and about stocks, uh, rogermontgomery.com uh, and if people are interested in investing, uh, then montinvest.com.
1: Awesome. And a special thank you and shout out to Rach in my team and Nathan in my team because, you know, it's you know coming up to after, well, it's well after lunch now and they're going to edit this podcast and get it up for tomorrow. Awesome. And, you know... One hour or hour and a half could take up to two and a half hours to edit because the team does such a great job. So special thanks to my team. And
2: thanks from me to them too.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. All right, friends, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.